0: Cancel your unwanted subscriptions by going to rocketmoney.com/wondery. That's rocketmoney.com/wondery. rocketmoney.com/wondery.
1: We have more for you now of the winter holiday special from CBS News Radio. I'm Gil Gross. When people say happy holidays this time of year, it usually is not to exclude Christmas by saying holidays. Christmas, of course, is by far the most celebrated holiday, but just to include whatever else the person you're greeting might be celebrating, whether it be Hanukkah, Kwanzaa, the occasional Festivus follower, or in many families, a combination of these and more. And one of those that is celebrated along with Christmas is Las Posadas. It is celebrated mainly in Mexico, but it is spread to near and far regions as well, and it marks the journey Mary and Joseph made from Nazareth to Bethlehem in search of a safe place to give birth to Jesus. Posada, by the way, which graces the name of many hotels in the southwestern United States, simply means an inn or lodging, which, of course, is what Mary and Joseph were looking for. One part of the United States where Las Posadas is commemorated is New Mexico, where one of the leading lights of music, as well as comedy on the side is Carlos Medina, whose latest CD or download is El Cantador. Carlos, good to talk to you, how are you?
2: I'm doing well, thank you, Gil. So as
1: did the journey of Mary and Joseph, this is a holiday that goes on for several days, doesn't it?
2: Yeah, Las Posadas is actually considered a a novenario or a novena, which uh, means nine, nine days. And uh, usually it's celebrated between December 16th and the 24th. And, uh, you know, like a legit posada would last nine days. The The girl playing Mary is on a donkey. And the first stop is at somebody's house. And then they sing, uh, you know, they sing the songs that, that are written for, for Las Posadas. And, you know, there's people inside the house, people outside the house. And it, it's quite a production. It, it's really... Um, it's really cool to to witness it. I remember as a kid seeing Las Posadas, and and then as a, as I uh, as I got older, being a musician, you know, I was involved in in in, in that part of the production. It's a cool expression of uh, of culture and tradition, and and music and language, and of course religion.
1: Yeah, I, it's just it's such an interesting thing because it's done with such joy now, and of course the story has a happy ending in the birth of Jesus, but it. It's really the story of Mary and Joseph being turned away at place after place after place after place.
2: Yeah, it, it's interesting because it involves a cast of insiders and a cast of outsiders, and it's you know it's the 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 people inside the houses when you're doing the the production, you know, and then the people uh, traveling with Mary and Joseph. Uh, of course, in this production, they have an entourage. I don't know how accurate that is historically, but. You know, I, I would assume it was uh, Mary and Joseph and the donkey. In, in the production uh, nowadays, you, you've got you know musicians following them, and uh, it, but it all ends with you know the insiders uh, letting the outsiders in.
1: Yeah, but I was looking at some of the dialogue because there's a there's a litany that goes on through this. The outsiders, Mary and Joseph, start by saying, "In in the name of heaven, I beg you for lodging because my wife." my beloved wife cannot walk. And the insiders say, this is not an end. Keep going. I cannot open. You may be a rogue. And then Mary and Joseph go, don't be inhuman. Have mercy on us. The God of heavens will reward you for it. And the insiders say, go, don't bother us. Because if I become annoyed, I'll give you a trashing. And it goes on and on like this. And and I guess just the fact that Jesus does finally safely get born is the reason why it can be celebrated with happy music and joy and and all of that. Now,
2: absolutely, and you know, and then the last the last uh, verse of that song, which is called uh, La La Canción de la Posada, is uh, you know, entren santos peregrinos, reciben esta este rincón. Which is, come in holy pilgrims, receive this corner. Because even though the place is poor, I offer you, I offer it to you from my heart, and uh, so it, you know, it, it's a beautiful ending to a, to the beginning of a, you know, of an incredible life.
1: <laughs> when you were a kid, you know, before you're now the grown-up star musician you are, but when you were a kid, because I've seen this done, there's celebrations with a child dressed up as an angel and all of that, I, I don't suppose your parents stuck wings and a halo on you or, or did they?
2: Well, it's interesting because, uh, I, I grew up the area where I grew up is, I would say 99% Catholic. We were one of the few families that didn't grow up Catholic, but being surrounded with the traditions and, and that culture, we, we would participate. And it, it was always, uh, interesting to me how, you know, how all this uh, fit into, into Christmas. And, and as a kid in, in, uh, in elementary school that was the play the school play and so as i grew up uh you know i was playing i was playing music by age five like like at dances and stuff so as as i got older i would often get asked to to participate as a musician and uh you know the the older i got uh, the the wiser i became to what i <laughs> i call the uh the posada after party, which once once the production is over and and Jesus found the the place to be born, then you know all the the older men and uh, and the musicians would would uh, huddle around a a little bonfire, you know. And it's interesting how how you know even las posadas becomes kind of like a rite of passage. And uh, being a musician, I, I guess it it kind of you're on the fast track to that and so uh, i i remember some of the uh the older women in the in the community always had an issue with the fact that hey we just celebrated this beautiful story and uh i, I would get um, chastised for that at one point i wrote a song and it's it's interesting because this is a song i wrote for my mom for mother's day because i i didn't i mean i didn't have enough money for a mother's day card that year But it's called Que Dios te guarde, Madrecita. And one day I realized that, you know, this kind of ties into Las Posadas. So I remember singing that song one night around the, the open barrel bonfire. Que Dios te guarde, Madrecita. Cada día yo pienso en ti. Si lejos de ti me encuentro, en mi corazón lo siento. One of the ladies that had the most issue with us doing that after Las Posadas liked the song, and so that kind of became the uh, the key, you know, to 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 keep her at bay and, and not be so mad. So this this story, the reenactment, it, it's it's it runs deep, you know, in the community uh, where I grew up, in the whole state, and uh, in, in all of Latin America. Uh I, I, I think I read somewhere that it's it's been uh, it's been celebrated for more than four hundred years, like the late fifteen hundreds is is the first uh, known reenactment, I guess.
1: Do you remember any of the the music other than yours from Las Posadas commemorations?
2: It varies regionally depending on on on, on where you live. I'm sure that there's uh I mean I've I've seen Posadas con mariachi where where the mariachi will actually write like a a son or a wapango, so it, it kind of changes the style of the music, but maybe it would use the same uh, the same lyrics. And then uh, there's there's very unique songs too that have been written specifically for for las posadas by by different you know songwriters and musicians. And uh, I feel like m- more than not they borrow from the, from La Posada song, but then there's other like religious songs that are, that are sang, especially when you're walking from one house to the next. One song that comes to mind is a song called Un Dia la Vez, One Day at a Time. It's just one of these universal, even though it's not really a religious song, it's been like accepted by several religions and, and it's just something that, that kind of made its way into the into the production, if you will. necesitado, me encuentro, señor. Ayúdame hoy, yo quiero saber lo que debo hacer. Muestra el camino que debo seguir, señor, por mi bien. Yo quiero vivir un uh, día a la vez. And then in English, it's one day at a time, sweet Jesus that's what I'm asking from the, so that it's, you know, it's a very well-known song um, recorded by, uh, I don't know, multiple artists in probably several languages.
1: Carlos Medina is a singer, also a comic and actor. We can talk about that another time, whose latest CD or download is El Contador. And Carlos a pleasure, happy holidays. Well, thank
2: you so much.
1: You're listening to the Winter Holiday Special from CBS News Radio. This is the Winter Holiday Special from CBS News Radio. I'm Gil Gross. A Christmas Carol is a book that has never gone out of print, a book so beloved, hardly a Christmas goes by without a new movie, a cartoon, a musical, or some variation of it. Lou Byard, the acclaimed historical novelist whose latest book is Courting Mr. Lincoln, had his first big breakthrough with a book that is something of a sequel to the Dickens, and unlike the many takeoffs on A Christmas Carol, went beyond it into the life of Tiny Tim as he grew up and became Mr. Timothy. We'll get to that in a moment. Lou, good to have you with us. Great to be here. It's it's interesting about A Christmas Carol. It has survived, I mean, all of Dickens' books have to some degree, but it has survived in a way that people relate to it in some personal way that is quite, quite beyond most books. Why is
3: that? That's a great question. I think... Two reasons. One, it's just an amazing story. And as a result of that, so many parts of it have entered the language. The word Scrooge. You call somebody a Scrooge, everybody knows exactly exactly what you mean. But one of the wonderful things about Christmas Carol, it's popular everywhere in the world, in India, in Middle East. It's popular in places where they don't actually celebrate Christmas. And I think one of the wonderful things about it is that it's it's really a secular story of Christmas. It doesn't require anyone to profess a particular creed or follow a particular belief system. It really is just about accessing the better angels of your own nature. And that's a humanist message, and that's a message that everyone can get behind, regardless of where they worship. It's interesting because we have such mixed
1: feelings these days. People look at Scrooge as everything that can go wrong with somebody, and yet from, I don't know, J.R. Ewing in Dallas to (laughs) some of the very rich today who utter... Many of the same things Scrooge says about sure. the poor and helping crippled children. His point of view is actually popular with many people, even many people who will read or go to a film of A Christmas
3: Carol this time of year. Popular, I mean, like the one about killing off the surplus population and stuff like that and getting rid of poor yes. people, yeah. Well, well I mean, I, but of course, the, the important part of Christmas Carol is the trajectory he makes. And, and I think you can't, you can't appreciate the story without following it all the way to its end because that's the whole point of the story is to see how even somebody has, unredeemable as Ebenezer Scrooge can be redeemed.
1: I guess we should get into Dickens at least briefly yeah. here because he's a mixed bag. He writes so beautifully about the importance of family, about holding the the cratchits, tiny Tim's family up as an example of everything we should be in terms of love of spouse and children, but he was something of a lout who
3: abandoned his own <laughs> wife and children. He, well, yes, he did. He kind of cast off his wife after she had borne him, I don't know how many d- dozens of children, dozens of children, dozens. <laughs> um yeah, and he and, and had a mistress and yes, he was not exactly a Mr family values, but I think the Cratchits are his ideal of how a family should be. I don't think it's necessarily a representation of his own life, but how he felt families should relate to each other. It's significant, I think, that they live in Camden Town, which is where uh, Dickens grew up with his own family. It's a, a then a pr- pretty poor suburb of, of London, but I think he wanted to believe... I think that's that. That's the key thing. This is this is the kind of family he he wanted to believe in. He was also, I should say, passionately concerned about children in general and about uh, children in poverty. The Christmas Carol was partly inspired by an 1843 government report on child safety in the mines, child labor laws that were being regularly flouted. So, if you read the book, if you actually read the original story, it's 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 really quite passionate about what children were up against in Victorian England. Well, very much our concept of childhood, uh, attacking
1: the idea that children are to be sent off to the workhouses, yeah. uh, the way that we look at childhood very much is from Dickens.
3: The, the hopeful side of childhood you're talking about. I mean, yes. Yes, yes. And the, the, and the, the, the fact that
1: children should have a childhood.
3: You know, yes, I know. Necessarily and that was, you're somewhere. right. And that was still a re- kind of unusual concept in those days, because at some point, particularly if you were in a poor working class family, you you just had to go to work. There wasn't there wasn't time for you to have play. There wasn't time even for an education. You just had to get a job and help support your family. So that's a, partly a function of the economic circumstances in which they grew up in. London was half children in those days, and many of them were just roaming untenanted with no families and, and struggling to survive, and that's what Dickens would have seen firsthand.
1: Well, then let's get into your book, Mr. Timothy, because it's it's interesting. What was there that drew you to the idea of Tiny Tim as somebody that we wanted pers- uh, to pursue? Because in in a way, in A Christmas Carol, he is kind of the image of pure innocence.
3: Absolutely, and that's probably why I didn't like him <laughs> growing up. Yeah, he was I've always loved Dickens. Dickens was my favorite author growing up, but I never liked Tiny Tim and I think it's because I just didn't believe in him. I didn't think it, a kid in, in his circumstances would behave as nobly and purely and uh, admirably as as Tiny Tim did. But I can see now that Dickens needed him to be that way to create this sort of moral center, the moral anchor for this myth that he was telling. But I just started thinking maybe there was something Dickens didn't tell us about this kid and how do we figure out what that was? And so Mr. Timothy, he's grown up. He's alive. He's he doesn't have a um, a crutch anymore. I t- took away all the sort of easy points of sentiment, and then put him in the Victorian underworld. He's in the he's living in a brothel and teaching the madam how to read. And he's at night he's trilling the um, the Thames River for for dead bodies with his friend Gully uh, to get their pocket change and and get the inquest fees. So he's living right on kind of the edge of the Victorian underworld. And in the process, he comes across some dead girls in the streets and becomes their self-appointed protector, and learns about himself and who he really is, you know, apart from all the things that Dickens wanted us to believe. One of the interesting things about that, besides
1: the fact that there's there's a great plot and a lot of payoff in the book, is that at the end of A Christmas Carol, we kind of get this view through the redemption of one man, Ebenezer Screw, that maybe there's this great hope. And one of the things that we get from your book is, yeah, but you know, London was still London, <laughs> And children still had an impossible time of it. And a, a kid like, like Tiny Tim, who, who is so perfect in the book, coming up against the reality of life in, in London as a grown up, would really be up against it because kids still were, and especially the poor.
3: Yes, absolutely. There really was no safety net in those days. There were their private charities. Those two gentlemen who tried to hit up Scrooge early in the story, early in A Christmas Carol, are examples of that. You know, trying to appeal to people's sense of charity and goodwill. But but they were uh, a lot of these 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 families and these children were. Essentially abandoned to their own devices, and and a lot of them didn't survive. And in my telling of the the sequel, you know, a lot of the, some of the Cratchits don't survive. So it's it, no, but nobody is safe. And of course, you had the disease, and you had rampant epidemics. So it was it was a tough time to be alive, and uh, a tough time to to survive, or let alone thrive in.
1: There are some throwaway lines about religion. Very few, as you point out, in a Christmas Carol. So what do we know about Dickens? I mean from what I know he was kind of a New Testament guy, but from what you you know we know of his personal life he also wasn't religious religious. So how did he mean this just as a story of a story of, you know, redemption, which I guess would be a more religious view of it or a more secular thing about the about the lives that people were were living in London? What was, what was the impetus for this, do you think?
3: I think it was just a sense of the injustice that was going on around him. He saw, as I said, he looked around and saw all this poverty, saw all this suffering, and saw people who were turning a blind eye to it, and that enraged him. And the Christmas Carol was written in I think about six weeks. It was written in really a heat of of inspiration, but also in a kind of rage. And again and again, he comes back to the suffering of children, to the to starvation and the want and hunger and crime. And and that really was, I think, his, pre, his predominant theme in taking this up, much more than um, a, a specifically religious or church-oriented theme.
1: It is interesting that this story about how uh, money isn't as important and he, he brings this up several times in A Christmas Carol as, you know, love the spirit of the seasons and mm-hmm. and all of that. One one of the ghosts just really rips into him for thinking that that you know commerce is the important thing rather than taking care of your fellow man. But ironically, a Christmas carol really becomes his kind of pension. He writes it in that hurry because Martin Chuzzlewit, which is a great book but it kind of flopped when it first came right. out and he needed money and then after that he spends much of the rest of his life in between writing an enormous amount of material going around performing a a form of of a christmas carol to audiences and the the ticket sales for that as well as the sales of the book made sure that you know he would never be poor again
3: oh for sure yeah and he was a famous a reader of his own work it's highly dramatic and uh, he had a renowned um, oral audiobook version, in effect, of Christmas Carol that he took everywhere. He took it to America. And But it did have an economic motive, you're right, because um, the copyright system was not very airtight in those days. And all his stuff, all his work was pirated in the United States. So the only way he could get any of that money back was to go on the road and, and read it out loud for the entertainment of folks. So, um, but because he was such a terrific reader of his own work and really a frustrated actor, uh, amateur actor himself, um, he, he really took to that theatrical vein. And, there were, and the books themselves are wonderfully theatrical. There's a reason they dramatize so beautifully. I think it's because he did think in terms of, of scenes and drama and melo, at times melodrama and keeping people excited.
1: Lou Bayard had extended the story of A Christmas Carol into his own novel. One of my favorites called Mr. Timothy. His latest book is Courting Mr. Lincoln. Lou, thank you so much for being with us.
3: Thank you. This has been
1: fun. We've got more of the Winter Holiday Special just ahead from CBS News Radio. Welcome back to the Winter Holiday Special from CBS News Radio. I'm Gil Gross. The Star of Bethlehem is only a star in that it's even mentioned in the Book of Matthew. And speaking of the Magi making their way to the Christ Child, we read when Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea. In the days of King Herod, behold, magi from the east arrived in Jerusalem saying, Where is the newborn king of the Jews? We saw his star at its rising and have come to do him homage. Hmm. So what might that star have been? And would there be such a thing that would direct them to Bethlehem? To deal with the story, again, only reported in Matthew, we have a completely different Matthew of a sort, rather Matthews, Grant Matthews, Professor of Theoretical Astrophysics and Cosmology in the Physics Department at the University of Notre Dame. Good to have you with us. Oh, it's a pleasure to be here. So the first question should be, especially for someone from a school where religion is taken quite seriously... Was this something like a miracle we just shouldn't question, or might this have been an actual light in the sky that either by divine intervention or fortuitous coincidence could point the way to Bethlehem?
4: Yes, there are several potential astronomical events that coincide with the right time frame that might have been what signaled to the Magi to uh, look for a ruler born in Judea.
1: And I guess the next question before we get deeper into the astronomy... Is are we making a mistake by starting out thinking it was a star? Could it have been a nova, a supernova, a, a comet? Uh, could they even seen back then as a supernova?
4: Yes, there was in fact one in the right time frame. You have to look at uh, who the magi were. They were most likely Zoroastrian priests. They were uh, what we would call modern-day astrologers. They were looking at the locations of the planets and the time of the year. And, and so the most likely event that would have signaled to the Magi that there was a ruler born in, in a particular place, Judea, was uh, a particular alignment in the sky.
1: So these are Zoroastrian priests. They're into astrology, which you know brings up a question about the comet theory because comets, to them would have been a bad omen. Also, just in terms of astronomy, a comet would not have led to a fixed position. You wouldn't follow a comet to Bethlehem.
4: Yeah, well, there's actually, people have written papers about this, that, you know, there could have been a tail. There was a comet in 5 BC that showed up. People have thought, well, the comet moves. That this, the, It mentions the star moves, and I'll get into that uh, but you're absolutely right. Uh, a comet was considered to be a harbinger of something awful that was come coming. Uh, the, there was a comet recorded with the death of Cleopatra and uh, a comet recorded with, uh, oh, you know, Caesar gets surrounded in Gaul and has all this trouble. Uh, so uh, comets were not considered a, a representing a, some good new ruler that was born.
1: Yeah, it it might have been. Hey, there's a comet. Let's run in the other direction, rather than oh, let's 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 follow that. Something really good is going to happen here. Yeah. Um. There are also astrologers, and I'm just wondering, knowing very little about this, by the way, that maybe they would be more interested in constellations anyway than than
4: a particular star. Actually, that's a, that's a very important part of the story, especially in the modern interpretation. Ptolemy was ancient astronomer. He, he actually made note there of each constellation corresponded to a different uh, geographical region in the belief system of the time. And uh, he identified Judea with Aries. The best theory, I think, uh, looks for an event in Aries that would have signaled to the Zoroastrians that a ruler was born. Uh, if you go to 6 BC... On uh, April seventeenth, within Aries, there was an alignment. The sun was there, which made it rising in the east. The moon, Jupiter, and Saturn were all in Aries. Even if we
1: are just talking about this, you know, spectacularly unusual alignment of of planets, and all that would make it a natural phenomenon. It looked another half a million years into the future and couldn't find this particular alignment happening again. So it still comes out as as very, very special.
4: Yeah, it's special, but you raise a good question. I mean, astrology was forbidden in Judea. So if there was a message, you know, let's say God timed it for this, it wasn't a message to the people of Judea. It would have been a message to the Zoroastrians. And uh, as an astrophysicist, astronomer, myself, I I like to think that uh, revealing the truth of the heavens uh, comes from studying the sky. And uh, to put a spiritual connotation, uh, if God wanted to reward those that were studying the sky at that time uh, with this message, uh, perhaps God would have timed the arrival of his son to coincide with this alignment.
1: It's fascinating stuff. Grant Matthews is professor of theoretical Astrophysicist and cosmology in the physics department at the University of Notre Dame. Grant, thank you so much, and Merry Christmas.
4: Merry Christmas. A pleasure talking to you.
1: You're listening to the Winter Holiday Special from CBS News Radio. Welcome back to the Winter Holiday Special from CBS News Radio. I'm Gil Gross this time of year, in many parts of the country, people start and end their workday in darkness, as we experience fewer hours of daylight. In fact, we just recently had the shortest day of the year, the winter solstice. So what is it, and why does it happen? Professor Andrew Fracknoy teaches astronomy at the University of San Francisco and San Francisco State University, and in 2013 was bestowed the Faraday Science Communicator Award. Andy, welcome to CBS News Radio's holiday special. Good to have you with us.
5: Well, it's nice to be with you,
1: Jeff. And let's start with the big question. How and why does the winter solstice even
5: happen? Well, this is an interesting part of the sort of annual rhythm that we experience going around the sun. Uh, It turns out that our planet is not orbiting the sun with its head held high. It's actually leaning over by about 23 degrees. And we astronomers are not quite sure why this is, but one theory we have is that early on in the Earth's history, our planet got hit, so that it tilted over, and like many accident victims, it hasn't been able to straighten out ever since. Okay. So this, this uh, lean has a direct effect on what we observe as we go around the sun. Uh, sometimes our lean leans us into the sun here in the northern hemisphere, and then we have the summer seasons, and sometimes we're leaning out of the sun, and we have the winter season. Uh, during the winter, we, uh, the sun is not quite as direct in heating us. And also, as you mentioned, the days are shorter and the nights are longer, all making for a colder environment.
1: Of course. And we've got to mention, because even people are not listening to us, you know, directly on their terrestrial radio broadcast, but listening to, say, the website of a radio station in the southern hemisphere, they're going, excuse me, we just had the longest day of the year.
5: (laughs) That's right. And this is actually uh, exactly the opposite of what we observe in the northern hemisphere, because the Earth is tilted when one side tilts in. The other side tilts out. So uh, this is actually an interesting experiment that you can do. Many people believe that the seasons are caused by the Earth being further from the sun in winter and closer to the sun in summer. But if that were true, uh, the Northern Hemisphere and the Southern Hemisphere, the U.S. and Australia, would have the same seasons. And in fact, that's not true. They have the opposite seasons. So distance is not the big deciding factor in our seasons. It is the tilt of the Earth.
1: In the Southern Hemisphere, at the South Pole, it's light, 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 24 hours a day, day after day after day, month after month after month because of that.
5: That's right. The poor penguins can't get any sleep. Um, (laughs) And in fact, this is uh, something we can observe just in the United States where Uh, the shortest day of the year is very different length in different parts of our country. So uh, in Fairbanks, Alaska, uh, on the winter solstice, they have less than four hours of day and all the rest is night, whereas in Dallas, we have almost 10 hours of day and uh, only 14 hours of night. So You see that it depends on how far north you are, how dramatic the winter solstice is for you. Which brings
1: up the question, what would life on Earth be like if we hadn't been hit by that asteroid, that other planet in the making or whatever hit us billions of years ago? If we never tilted, would we have seasons? What what
5: would life on Earth be? What a great question. And absolutely, this is Uh, True for other planets, for example, Jupiter uh, doesn't have a tilt, and so the seasons, if there are any, are determined entirely by when we're closer to the Sun and when we're further from the Sun. And it is true that the Earth's orbit is not exactly a circle. It's pretty close to a circle, but it's not exactly a circle. So we would have much, 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 much milder seasons, but here's the interesting part. The Earth is closest to the sun in January, and we're furthest from the sun in July. So if the uh, seasons were determined by our distance from the sun, then in January we'd be entering a mild summer, and in July we'd have our mild winter. So as long
1: as we have somebody with us who's looking up at the stars and planets, let's look at this past year where we had the successful landing on Mars of the rover called InSight, and how big a deal is that, to have that on the Red Planet?
5: Well, this is uh, one of the, the next steps in our ongoing exploration of Mars, and we've done pretty well in having uh, both rovers and landers and orbiters uh, kind of surrounding the Red Planet with Earth visitors. This particular mission is really going to be a big step forward, Because for the first time, we're going to dig deep into Mars. Uh, This is actually designed to tell us more about the inside of Mars, which is a smaller planet and may have very different structure from what the Earth has. So we're going to be uh, thumping Mars and digging into Mars, measuring the Mars weather. Uh, Inside is going to understand a lot more about our neighbor planet than we've ever known.
1: And one of the things that we're trying to find out is at one time we believe Mars had water. Mars may have been not exactly like Earth, but much more Earth-like than it is now. We're going back billions of years here and trying to figure out not only what happened to its atmosphere, but whether there might still be water somewhere in there and some microbial life that's on the planet.
5: Right. This is the great question that NASA is uh, ultimately answering is, how did Mars, which we think at the time of three, four billion years ago, actually had uh, lakes and rivers and maybe even a small ocean, how did it turn into the dry desert and the thin atmosphere world that we have today? We think Mars lost its air slowly because its gravity is weaker. But that entire history is a fascinating one. We'll have to see if anything might have survived the long loss of atmosphere, even if just in fossilized form, which might tell us whether Mars at one time could have supported a uh, second genesis, a, a separate beginning of life. Uh, If life began both on Mars and on Earth separately, that would make us much more optimistic about the possibility of life starting in a lot of...
1: Okay, one more thing. In this coming year, we have a spectacular eclipse coming up. Can you tell us about that?
5: Well, yes. So uh, in January of 2019, on January 20th, which is a Sunday evening, there's going to be a total eclipse of the moon, visible throughout the entire united states now an eclipse of the moon is where the earth's shadow gets on the moon and the full moon slowly goes darker and darker and darker until it kind of gets a reddish dark and so this is going to happen in the evening of january 20th uh it will be visible everywhere Uh, in the United States, as long as the weather allows you to see the full moon. And the thing that we should tell people is that, unlike the eclipses of the sun, eclipses of the moon are perfectly safe to look at. Uh, You don't need any special equipment. You don't need protective glasses. Since the full moon is safe to look at, and it's the full moon that's getting darker, there's no danger to you. And also it's very easy to see just with the naked eye.
1: Andy Fracknoy, thank you for being on the Holiday Special from CBS News Radio. Welcome back to the Holiday Special, from CBS News Radio. I'm Gil Gross. Holiday colors abound this time of year as people show their holiday spirit, and one way people splash green and red is with the ubiquitous holiday flower, the poinsettia. CBS Sunday Morning's Mark Strassman explores the history of how this red and green foliage imported from Mexico became America's most colorful yuletide symbol.
0: In Greenville, South Carolina, this 1905 craftsman-style home is a canvas of Christmas color. Are they in
3: every room? They're in every room, (laughs) and every room's different color.
0: (laughs) Travis Seward and Wade Cleveland have a passion for poinsettias. Greenville has poinsettia pride. At the airport, new arrivals see it in this massive tree, more than 10 feet tall, built with 168 plants. You can't live in Greenville and
2: be a part of the community and not understand that the poinsettia has a special place. They have the poinsettia parade for the Christmas parade, and so... And a poinsettia hotel, and a
0: poinsettia bridge, which is very historic, and a poinsettia highway, so it's hard to miss that there is a connection. It's hard to miss in this house. Yes. <laughs> What's less obvious is the history of these plants, which grow wild in Mexico. In the 1500s, the Aztecs were the first to cultivate them. Franciscan missionaries arrived in the 1600s and thought the plant's red color symbolized the blood of Christ. They called it la flor de la noche buena, or Christmas Eve flower. In Tasco, Mexico, this nativity parade earlier this month showcased the poinsettia's enduring power. Street mosaics in the city pay tribute to the plant. It is the Christmas plant. Jim Faust, a horticulture professor at Clemson University, is an authority on the plants. Poinsettia or poinsettia? Yeah, most academics and horticulturists will say poinsettia. Uh, Joel Poinsett himself said poinsettia. Poinsett, a 19th century politician, lived in Greenville. Joel Poinsett, who the plant is named after, uh, was the first ambassador of the United States to Mexico. And he was an avid plants person, and so he was involved in the exchange of plants to and from uh, Mexico and the United States. And and so he happened to, in 1828, uh, send the first poinsettias to this country. Americans became enamored of this plant that blooms only once, around Christmas. It's really in the early 1900s when poinsettias become unpopular that you start to see stamps and Christmas cards and stuff that really start to have much more of the red and green as the dominant colors. By the 1960s and 70s, U.S. greenhouses produced millions of them. Shades of red make up 90% of the $200 million market. Contrary to widespread belief, poinsettias are not poisonous to people or pets. If you taste the nectar on them, it tastes really good. It's it's really sweet. It is sweet. (laughs) It's like honey. It is like honey. Who knew? Consumers typically buy one or two. Travis Seward has bought more than 80.
1: How do you know when to stop?
4: He doesn't ever know when
1: to stop. This has been the Holiday Special from CBS News Radio, produced by District Productive and Paul Woody Woodhall, with the assistance of Hunter Sense. I'm Gil Gross.